listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Good morning, Red Church. How are we? Good, good. Good to be back. My name's Brittany. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here at Red. And um, I don't know about you, but I really enjoy the first kind of week of January. It kind of feels like you can take a bit of a breath after like Christmas, New Year's, all the family, I've been away, and now I get to just be still for a little bit. Um, Before you head back into work, maybe some of you already have, but I just enjoy the space we're given. And so that's what I'm excited about this morning, to just sit with you and sit with God and be like, let's just sit and reflect and hear what you want to say before we enter into the year, before we start our schedules, before we head back to work and everything else is put on us. Um, Yeah, so it's really great to be together this morning. We're going to read from one of the Gospels, so I'm going to encourage you to get a Bible out. There should be some in front of you, um, in the rows there. We're going to read from Luke's Gospel. That's um, towards the back of the Bible. Um, If you head to page 730, if you're looking at the Maroon Bibles, um, we're going to read from Luke 15. A parable... Um, that Jesus told. It's a really wonderful parable, the longest one that he tells. Um, It's a pretty well-known one, um, inside and outside of the church. It's called the parable of the lost son. Um, And yeah, really, really powerful story. So I'm just going to read that, and then we'll jump into more of the text. There was a man who had two sons. The younger son um, said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said... How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, 
and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It's a really, really powerful, interesting story. Um, and it's often labeled as um, the prodigal son, the parable of the lost son. That's what it says in my Bible. But a lot of critics, not critics, biblical scholars actually reframe it and call it the parable of the compassionate father. And I love looking at it from that perspective. And um, there's a famous painting that Rembrandt did of this particular parable. You've probably seen it before. Um, it's a beautiful image. And I love the way that Rembrandt has captured um, the father's heart in this. A few years prior to painting this one, he did actually paint, um, uh, yeah, make a painting that looks a lot more like the story where the, younger son run, uh, the father runs to the youngest son. But it's this one that's become the more famous one, which is interesting when we think about it. And what I love is that Rembrandt has chosen to paint the heart of the father, to paint what he did and who he is, not what happened in the parable. And it's so interesting that he chose to paint father, who represents God, as an old man. He's worn and weary. And if you look closer, it almost seems as if he's blind. This man has lived many years and he has worked very hard in the fields. This is a man who has many wrinkles and many uh, marks on his face from being a man who spent hours in the sun but also a man who has cried many tears and has experienced a lot of sorrow as his sons left him. You see these marks. This is like a canvas on his face of what he's held, what he's waited for. A lot of people that look at this painting and others who have analyzed it talk about the hands of the father as well. These hands that have awaited the son's return. They're also worn, they're also tired, but they also remain open. It's with his touch that the sorrow that he's felt that marks him, that sorrow it's changed to joy when his son returns and he finally rests his hands on him, welcomes him home, tells him that he is loved. And there's a sense in which you can see that this man would have never have wanted his son to leave. He knows what it's like to be out there and his sorrow and his pain to understand what his son has gone through is so deep, so significant. His hands have desired to hold him as he's encountered the hard things. His hands have desired to heal him as he's found hurt along the way, to protect him and to bring him back. But also, it's amazing to think about this man that is depicted, this, God, this is God in human form, that his love is also so great that he lets his son go. He doesn't hold him back with his hands, he releases him. He offers him space to leave the love that he has given him. It's the strength of his love, the power of that, which is also the source of the father's suffering. His love is so great. And God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, of you and me at the heart of all things, is first and foremost a father, a father of you and I. That's what he's chosen to be. And he chooses to let us love him and remain with him or for us to walk away. 
just as the younger son did, just as we read about. And it's actually really powerful to read this passage and to look at actually what happens throughout it and how the father responds to both of his sons. I'm going to leave this image up and I want to encourage you, if you are someone who just loves to sit and look at things and take things in in that form, then please do so. Get lost in that image. As you read this text, or as you read it before, there's a few things that really stand out, but you kind of have to slow down to notice them. The younger son, you can imagine, is this really boisterous young boy who's grown up with his father, but also loved to kind of live life on the edge, who's constantly pushing the boundaries. He's always the son that you have to retrieve, who's jumped over the fence and gotten lost somewhere. He's the fun one who is excited about life and thinks, oh my gosh, I can't wait for the day that I get to leave and explore something outside of this place. It's so limiting, I'm ready, I'm excited. And there's this freedom over him. You can imagine, yeah, him growing up and his older brother, he sees his older brother in the distance. Well, he's the responsible one. And culturally, that is the way it went. The younger son still had some responsibility, but ultimately a lot of it fell on the older one. And so this younger brother enjoys life and is ready to see what the world holds. And so when he comes to his father and says, Father, please give me the share of the estate, the inheritance, he thinks it's his key to freedom. He's ready. But in that same act, he's actually deeply rejecting his father and who he is. It's a really interesting moment Culturally, again, if you ask for your inheritance, it's like saying to your father, I wish you were dead. I'm ready to go on with my life. Can you like, just move aside? Also, within that society in the ancient world, if you did that, you would be disowned not just by your father, but by the whole community because you are walking away from something that you were designed to carry on and partake in. So this is a bold move for the younger son. Whether he realizes that or not, I'm not sure. He's so driven to see something else, to be somewhere else. I think he's a bit blind to it. He doesn't realize what he's doing. He doesn't realize who he's leaving. And in the ancient world, the father's response is meant to be a refusal, firstly, and a punishment. But the father that's depicted in this painting, the father that we read about in this parable, doesn't do that. His love is greater than that. His love is so great that he doesn't want to hold his son back. He wants his son to freely love him, but he's not going to force that. Although the son has attempted to sever all relationship with his father, the father chooses not to make that the truth. Kenneth Bailey, who writes about this, says that the father remains the father. He does not sever relationship with the son broken because of the son's act, but the father still holds out the broken end of the rope of his relationship, hoping that the other end can yet be joined. In so doing, he suffers. If the father had disowned the son, there would be no possibility of reconciliation. The father's suffering provides the foundation of the possibility of the son's return. How powerful is this love? So interesting, 
that this younger son is so ready to leave, asks his father for his inheritance. And as he takes his inheritance from his father's hands, these hands that have held him, that have taught him how to work the soil, these hands that are worn and tired, that have created this inheritance, he doesn't even look at them, he grabs and he leaves. He doesn't recognize the hands that have offered him so much, not just up until this point, but also now, yes, I give you life. Yes, I give you everything I've worked for. Here, take it, take it from my hands. But again, he's not focused on that, so he takes it and leaves. He doesn't think twice. He leaves home, and we actually don't know how far he travels. What I love about a parable, the way that Jesus tells story, is he lets you fill in some of the gaps. (laughs) But you can imagine it may have been a long time. He's gone to a distant country. He's walking. That takes a while to get there. He spent all his money and ends up feeding the pigs. It says in verse 14 in the um, Passion Translation that with everything spent and nothing left, he he grew hungry, for there was a severe famine in that land. There's a sense in which this excitement, this adventure, what he is seeking for, finally fails him. He comes to the end of himself, and what's the result? He's hungry. (laughs) He finds himself in a really difficult place. And I believe there are here, some here, some of you here today who are in a similar place, who may not describe it that way, but feel there is a famine. You've actually come to the end of yourself. You're tired of trying to meet the requirements of the world's ifs. If you are good looking, if you're intelligent, if you're wealthy, you will make it. Or if you have an education, a really great job, or really good connections or if you produce, if, 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 endless cycles of if that actually just leave us tired and hungry, wandering endlessly. Yet there is something, that same hunger that you encounter also drives you to seek for something else. There's something that you think is out there that you know must be to fulfill this need. And perhaps you've never encountered the Father's love. Perhaps you are here today and you're looking for something, you're not sure. Something has driven you to come this morning, to be in a seat, to search and find what that hunger is designed to be filled by. Or maybe you have encountered the Father's love, but for some reason have found that you have wandered off. Not quite sure how you got there. And maybe it's not to a distant country but every time or any time spent outside of the Father's presence can feel like an eternity. Every time we search for unconditional love outside of his presence, we become the prodigal son. Every time that we take the gifts that he's given us, the gifts of our inheritance, like our health, the gifts of our intellect, our emotional gifts, When we offer them to the world, what does the world do except exploit us? We use it to impress the people around us or the world, to gain position, to gain understanding, to work out actually who am I? Hope to receive affirmation and praise from the people around us instead of using it for the glory of God. There is a temptation in each of us a rebellion in each of us. There is a younger son that desires to adventure and to be completely independent. We all have a little bit of that in us. We believe that we can do it without God. We got it. And sometimes we, we you know, follow that. 
And it can happen in a moment. It's not something that we choose often blatantly. These, these are little choices. But I love what it says in verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. Although the youngest son has made choices, he now finds himself in a distant, distant country, he still has a choice to make. He still has an opportunity. There's a memory that he has. There's something that he remembers of his father, and it's his hands. He talks about the way that his father gives of himself to even his slaves. He remembers something of his father, that he feeds his slaves from his hands. He's not encountered that out in the world. He's hungry, he's alone. People are not acknowledging him, and they're not even wanting to feed him. There is a small memory and hope of his father that he believes to be true, and he thinks to himself, maybe that's where my hunger will be satisfied. It's just that little slither of hope, but he follows it and he chooses to return home. I think, again, we've all experienced that at one point. Little hope that actually what we encounter in the world isn't all there is. Hope that there can be something good that there can be places where there's peace and love, no more crying, no more pain. A place to be known, to find that deep rest that we long for, that we cannot find in other places. To no longer hunger, you and I, we have this. We search for it, we seek. What are we looking for? We're looking for the Father. No matter the distance, no matter the time, no matter what it's looked like, the cry of your heart and the cry of my heart is the same. It's to be with the Father. And this is the same cry of Adam and Eve when they were outside of the garden. It's the same cry of the Israelites in bondage in Egypt. It's the same cry of the prophets in exile. It's the same cry of the disciples after Jesus' death. It's the same cry of the martyrs of the past. It's the same cry of the sons and daughters lost in war and genocide. It's the same cry of the millions of refugees here and now. It is the cry of a child lost looking for their father. It is a cry in you and in me. And it's the one that the father is so desperate to answer to, and he has. God is awaiting your return. He hears your cry and he desires to hold you. His hands are outstretched, waiting for you to come back. He's looking forward to seeing you coming down that road. And his response, as we read in the text in verse 20, is compassion. It's not anger or rejection. It's a coming towards, not a pushing away. His hands are open. He's saying, come home. Perhaps there's a question inside of you, though, around this. There's something gnawing at you. And again, we've all had this question at different times. Could this actually be true? Britt, this is just a story. This is great. But it's not my story. I don't know if God is actually that good. Or, yeah, I've known God, and that's not really the God I've experienced. That happens for others, but not for me. 
Sometimes there's this fear of God that we have because he is almighty, he has power and authority, he created you and me, he created the heavens. There's a sense in which he is a father and sometimes father for us can mean distance, power, control, and it results in us having fear. But that's not the God that we're reading about. That's not the God that Rembrandt depicts. And actually, Jesus telling this parable, what he is doing, part of his heart in telling this is introducing us to the Father that he knows, the Father that he loves. He's redefining who this Father is, who God is, because we often forget. And how often I have done this, how often I have put experiences of my life onto God. Those moments where I have seen people in position over me misuse me or hurt me. And so I create a distance, I create a barrier because I'm like, you're not trustworthy. And it's amazing how quickly we can do that, consciously and subconsciously, putting that on God. He's not trustworthy. He's good, I'll come close, but I'll keep my boundaries and I'll keep myself safe because my experience tells me that I will be hurt by those around me but it's not the God that we read about. It's not the God that Jesus is telling us about. It's not the God that Jesus shows us through the way that he lived. And do you know what else? The enemy loves to make us question who God is. It's the same question he asked in the garden of Adam and Eve and continues to ask us. He's not very creative. He uses the same one. Is God really good? Did God really say? He just phrases it differently, but that's what he does to us. And so we build ourselves into this you know, hidden place where trust cannot be had or it's only given out in little moments to protect ourselves. But when we sit in that fear, when we choose to agree with that fear, we become like the older brother. So, so desperate for the father's presence but keeping him at a distance so desiring for the Father to see us the way that we really want to be seen, but believing that he doesn't. You can hear it in his voice in the passage in verse 29 when he says, you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. You don't see me the same way you see your younger son. I'm not good enough. I'm not like my younger brother. You don't love me as much as you love him. Look what you've done. This is how you see me. And again, I'm the first one to put my hand up to say I'm guilty of telling God about how he sees me and how he should love me. But will we let him tell us how he sees us and how he desires to love us? The older son might not leave the father's presence physically, but he creates a distance in a different way. And do you know what? I was thinking about this. We do this relationally all the time put up a wall to keep people at a distance, hide things, or not fully reveal who we are because there's mistrust and fear. And if we do that, we can keep control. And we do that with God as well. But it comes from that fear of not feeling worthy of his love, not wanting to be fully seen in case God says, oh, actually, you're not good enough. This is the older son. And again, although he's been with the father this whole time, he doesn't know the father. He's unaware of the man that he has lived with, the man that has loved him and cared for him, the hands that have held him and taught him how to work the fields, 
and the hands that still hold out to him. The plight of the older son is a choice to trust. Trust that the father is who he says he is. And it's so interesting when you look at this text. Although it makes you want to compare the two sons, they actually come to the same point. They say the same things, but just in different ways. In verse um, 19, the younger brother says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men, i.e. make me a slave. In verse 29, the older son says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You see me as a slave. I'm not worthy. Same cry from these two young sons. It's the same thing that they're crying out for. It's the same blindness that they have. Father, you just see me as a slave. Just call me that. I'll just, I'll just have that. That's the younger son. Just, that's enough. Just please give me a place to sleep. I don't need any more. I know I haven't earned it. I know I've been bad, but just let, call me a slave. The older son is, all you ever see me is as a slave. I've worked so hard, and that's how I earn my right, and I've, I'm good, but now I'm just a slave to you. You don't see me. I'm never going to be anything else. I'm not worthy. It's the same heart. It's the same cry. And if you think about it, this older son, perhaps you recognize part of him in yourself, he is the one that's meant to take responsibility. In the ancient world, he will be given the full inheritance. Well, what's left over after the son? The younger one's taken a lot. He's called to take care of the father and the mother, to carry things on. But when did that opportunity, that position become his identity? Something changed at one point when he grew up, and he thought he had to earn it but the father actually never asked that of him. He conveys to both of his sons who they actually are. His response is the same, it's compassion to both of them. He runs and he goes out to both of them. The oldest son is just as rebellious. As he comes home and doesn't enter the party, that's actually a really significant act He's being quite defiant. Again, culturally, as the older brother, he's meant to celebrate with the family. He represents um, authority and um, an alignment with what the father wants. And so him not going in is saying, I don't agree with what you're doing. I don't think you're treating your, the youngest son right. I'm going to be defiant. And it communicates something to the father, but also to everyone there. And again, it's as if in that moment the father receives another pain in his heart, more marks on his hands and his face. They're weary from crying from a boy. He will not see him as he truly is. But his response is not that, although he feels pain. He doesn't act unjustly. He acts in compassion. He grows out to his son, and his first words in verse 31 are, my son. And if you look at that in the Greek, the word that Luke uses here is technon which is actually a really affectionate firm of, um, way of addressing his child. It's not just son, it's my child, my son, my precious son. Although he clothes the younger son in a robe, puts a ring on him and shoes on his feet, he clothes the older brother in an affectionate term. He brings him close in a different way. To the older, he offers a different kind of an intimacy a different opportunity to be with him. And I love that about God. We're all wired different ways. We come to him in different ways. We have different journeys. But his love is the same. How it outworks is different. What he says to you is different to what he says to me. But it's still the same heart. 
The other really powerful thing when you look at this text is that when the father went out to him, traditionally, as the elder, he would have stood in front of the younger boy and said to him, my son, everything I have is yours. He would have addressed him face to face, but he chooses not to do that. He chooses to break that down. In the Greek, again, it says when the father went out, he went out to entreat his son. It's parakelio. My Greek's not great, obviously, but something along those lines. Para actually means beside or alongside. He chooses to take away that authority, to intimidate and actually stand alongside his son, making him almost equal, loving him in a different way. And in that moment, he also asks him to have the same vision, to see what he sees. What does he say? You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. All I have is yours. There's nothing to earn. You already have it. You've already been living in it. You already have all of my love and everything that comes with that. Just can you not see it? Look, my son, look. A few weeks ago, we were praying before a service here. And as we were doing that, someone in that prayer time had a really beautiful image that I would love to share with you. Um, They were talking about uh, walking through a field and along a pathway, and it was a pathway that they'd been before. But this time, when they found themselves there, things were different. They could feel the grass spongy under their feet, felt the breeze move in their hair, the little dappled light through the trees landing on them. Same place, but different vision. And as they prayed this, they felt there was a sense in which there are many people at Red and more to come that have maybe spent time with the Father but never fully seen him. They're in the same place, but all of a sudden they're awakened. No longer are they blind to the things around them, but actually there's a sense of sight and touch and smell and encounter just as they walk on that path. I believe there are people here today where that is happening. In fact, I know it. There are stories in this room. We are being awoken to the Father's love as he comes alongside us and says, look, everything I have is yours. This parable is so powerful for so many reasons and yet also so frustrating because there is no end. It's a bit of a cliffhanger, isn't it? Jesus is kind of like, cool, I'm finishing there, Rembrandt the same, we don't really know what's gonna happen. In the painting, the old brother, older brother is standing on the right there at a distance, choosing to watch, but we never really know if he engages. We don't really understand what happens, but do you know what? We don't need to because we know the God and the Father who this parable speaks about and this painting shows us. What we can be confident in is that God's love is unchanging. God's presence is always there. His hands and arms are always open because his love is not dependent on our repentance. It's not dependent on our inner or outer changes. That's not what his love is dependent on. His love is dependent on who he is and he doesn't go against his character. Whether you feel like you are the younger or the older brother, do you know what? At times we kind of can be both. We move in and out. We're never just one of them. 
The Father's heart is the same. His love is the same. It's for us to come home. Henry Nguyen says that the Father couldn't compel his son to stay home. He couldn't force his love on the beloved. He had to let him go in freedom, even though he knew the pain it would cause both his son and himself. It was love itself that prevented him from keeping his son home at all cost. It was love itself that allowed him to let his son find his own life, even with the risk of losing it. Here the mystery of life is unveiled. I am loved so much that I am left free to leave home. The blessing is there from the beginning. I have left and keep on leaving it, but the Father is always looking for me with outstretched arms to receive me back. The hands of this all-loving and compassionate Father remain open. And you know these hands. These hands that have been painted by Rembrandt. They are familiar to you. For these hands formed you in your mother's womb. These hands have fed you. These hands have held you close to your mother in those times of need. They've cared for you, protected you in times of danger, healing you in times of hurt. You know these hands. They've held you steady through waves of grief. They are God's hands, but they are also the hands of fathers and mothers, teachers, friends, brothers, sisters, and friends. Fingerprints of his love and compassion mark our lives. You know these hands. And there is a choice, there's an opportunity. The way that Rembrandt painted this picture leaves us questioning what happens. It wasn't until I studied this a little bit more was it drawn to my attention that there are more than just the father and the two sons in this picture. There were three others. I don't know if you can see them in the dark there. But they're watching. They're watching this father and his compassion. They're watching what the older son will do. Do they understand the father's compassion, the choice he's made? Are they people from the party? Will they let the father embrace them? Will they join in the celebration? Will the older son allow himself to be embraced? It leaves us to ask the same questions of ourselves. Do we understand father's compassion? Will we let him embrace us? Will we come close? Will we celebrate with him when those that are lost are found? This parable gives us three invitations. The first one is to come home. To remember who Father is, to listen to that hope that's within you, something that you can't quite put your finger on, but to follow that freely and trust where it may lead you. Timothy Keller, when he writes about this, says that there is no evil that the Father's love cannot pardon and cover. There is no sin that is a match for his grace. The Father's love and acceptance are absolutely free. As a younger brother, we may begin that journey and think of the ways we're going to defend ourselves on the way before we arrive to the Father. Okay, I'll follow this hope, but there's a few things I'm probably going to get sorted out. No, 
There's no evil the Father's love cannot pardon and cover. You don't have to work it out because he already has. Jesus did that. That's his grace and love and mercy. But we're required to believe it, to say sorry when we didn't or haven't, and to begin that journey home. Come home. The second invitation is to trust home. Without trust, we can't let ourselves be found. Trust is that deep inner conviction that the Father wants us home. Trust and surrender to the desire to be in the Father's presence. Believe that he wants you there. Believe it. It is true he wants you home. He made it possible by sending his son. As long as we doubt that we are worth finding, as long as we put ourselves down as less loved than the younger brothers and sisters around us, we miss out on this. We cannot be found. We need to remind ourselves. We need God to remind us. We need to remind each other that God is looking for us. And he will go anywhere to find you. He does not tire. He loves you. He wants you home. And he cannot rest until he has you with him. Trust home. And the final one is be home. We are still returning and we will always be in that state. That beautiful movement between the younger son and the older son as we make choices consciously and unconsciously as we're tempted to leave home. We're bound to do that. We're human. The Bible has story time after time of the way that we do that. Yet the closer we get to home, it becomes this realization that we have. That it isn't always just about returning home. That's not the only call we have. There's another one, another invitation. Once we are in God's house, once we are sons and daughters of this father of ours, we are called to be like him. We're called to love like him. To be good like him. To care like him. Jesus taught us that. He teaches us and he says, love those who love you. If you love those who love you, what credit will you get? Don't even the sinners do that, or the Pharisees. But he's saying love all of those. He's inviting us to be like the Father. The hands that have forgiven you, those hands that have forgiven me, that have brought healing, that have held me and offered that meal of celebration, they must become our own hands as well. an opportunity to step into a fatherhood or a motherhood of compassion to be like the father in this story and you know what we need to keep looking at this image of the prodigal son we keep need to keep remembering that embrace that in compassion we need to keep experiencing that ourselves so that we carry that out and be people that can also be somewhat um, carrying God's compassion to find ourselves received by his hands by his arms and to raise our own open and vulnerable, yet filled with the mercy, love, and grace of the Father, because that is what we have known. Grief, forgiveness, and generosity are the three ways by which the image of the Father grows in us. They are three aspects of the Father's call to be home. 
the grief, the cry of your heart that I mentioned earlier, the cry of my heart. As I wrote this sermon, God reminded me of different people in my heart or in my world who I am grieving over because I can see that they are lost. And my heart for them is for them to know the Father's love so deeply. And I know there are people in your life that you feel that pain, that grief and love for. That's the Father's heart. There's power in experiencing that and holding that. We are marked by it and shaped by it, but we're also shaped by God who can change that. And so we need to feel it and not deny it, but let it fuel our desire to see them return home. We need to forgive, to be a people that forgive when people don't see us the way that we hoped they would, when they misunderstand what we've done or not done, just like the father with his two sons. They didn't see him for so long and we still don't know if they did. There's so much power in forgiveness when we can hold out our hands and say, it's okay, I know you're hurting and you're pushing me away, but my hands will not be closed. I'm going to remain open. Forgiveness does that. And finally, generosity. The father is so generous. His younger son has given away so much of his inheritance, but what does he get out? A cloak, a ring, and shoes. Things to mark him as his son, things to re-honor and be generous to him with. That's what they represent. He says to the older son, everything I have is yours. How are we going to be generous with our time, with the things that we have, just like the father is with us? And hear me right, what I'm saying is to call to be like the father, not to be the father. God's job is to be God. (laughs) He's the one that brings people home, that changes hearts. But just as Jesus' heart in telling this story is for us to remember who God is, so too we are called to remind others, to say to others, hey, this compassion, this love that marks and has changed me is from a father that also you belong to. Why don't you come and meet him? That's the opportunity we have. In this parable, and the two prior to it, there's a lot of celebration that happens. They all end in that way. It's said twice in this parable. The father says, come and celebrate with me. Come and celebrate, let's rejoice. And this is not a naive sense of celebration. There's an invitation now that God asks of us to celebrate. It's not an ignoring of what has been. We don't know if the youngest son chooses to stick around or how well he does being back in his father's home. We also don't know what the older son does, but that doesn't matter. The father's not concerned with that. What is he concerned with? That his sons that were lost are now found. So he says, let's celebrate now. There is still pain and there is still darkness, but we have opportunity to celebrate. We have opportunity to step into the light even despite the darkness. to celebrate every time someone returns home. And what is God celebrating? He's celebrating these little acts that he sees within you, that he sees within me, that we have been seeing here at Red. People turning and returning home. There are some of you in this room where that is your story. You have begun that journey There are people in this room who have been praying for others, who pray for God's forgiveness and love. That's what God celebrates over. 
There are moments of forgiveness that have happened in relationship. He's celebrating over that. There are many signs of the kingdom and light and life here. Are we looking? Are we celebrating? And it's not naive, it's good. Perhaps the numbers are small. They seem like small things, but I don't really think that's how God works. He doesn't count numbers. He doesn't grade it in that way. One act of repentance, an act of selfless love, a choice to truly forgive, that's all it takes for God to come off his throne and to run towards us. He's returning sons and daughters. And his response is joy and compassion. And do you know what? As we grow as a family, as we see many more people walk through these doors and many others in your life return to God, as we encounter mothers, fathers, sisters and brothers as they come home, I believe what God is asking of us and the invitation is, he's whispering in our ears, go get the others. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for those arms and hands that are constantly outstretched towards us. We thank you that you're always moved to compassion when you see us. That the pain and hurt that we have felt away from you is enough. It is not something that you want to highlight, but actually something that you want to heal. So I ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you would bring that revelation to our eyes, to our hearts, to our souls, and to our spirits, to recognize the presence of the Father, to blow on that hunger and that fire within us, to be with him, to help us and beckon us home, and to also believe that there are many more, to celebrate with you, Father, as many come back to you. God, we trust in what you want to do. We know this is for your kingdom and for your glory, and we want to give you all that honor and glory. But for now, Father, we just ask that we would see you as you truly are, that we would choose to look at those hands and take a step closer. And Holy Spirit, I just ask right now that you would lead us as we do that, as we reflect on the things that you've pointed out through your word. In this moment and time of worship, may we spend time with you. May we be led by you, trusting in you and trusting the Father. Amen.